0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. With that said, let's jump into uh, Colossians. We've got uh, a bit of work to do this morning. Um, But before we do that, let me just kind of remind us uh, contextually why we are here, right? Um, So uh, we spent a few weeks Uh, focusing very intently on what we believed the Lord had for this local congregation of the believers, right? So what it meant to be a part of Sojourn, what it meant for us to be faithful uh, to what we think God has called us to do here um, in this particular part of the world, in this particular time with these particular people, right? Um, And at the same time, what we want to never um, escape from our minds is that what God is doing is something that is global in scale, um, that, that this mystery that has now been revealed is something that um, is, is happening in, in all of the universe, that all of it is coming together in, in great harmony um, in and through the person and work of Jesus and in and through his uh, people who he has called to himself and through whom he endeavors to reveal himself um, to the world. And so what he is doing uh, transcends a particular people or a particular location. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll jump into Colossians. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to be gathered together with the saints. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that because of Jesus, um, we now call one another brother and sister, um, and that, that does not depend in any way on how long we have known each other. Um, it depends only upon the fact that you have called us sons and daughters Not because of our works, but because of Jesus's. And so, Lord, that's exciting and that is um, life-giving and freeing. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that that gives us from having to perform for one another. And Lord, that we can just be and we can rest, knowing that this morning we have full approval. That you are pleased to dwell in us now by your Spirit because of Jesus. And so we thank you for that. We pray that uh, in this time we would receive your word, um, Lord, that your spirit would teach and admonish us, uh, Lord, that we might be shaped and changed and molded into the likeness of your son, Jesus, for your great glory and for our great joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in 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 any good story, any good, particularly any good sort of mystery story, there is uh, there's always a turnkey moment in the plot. Um, typically, uh, in in literature terms, that's called the climax, right? Um, of the story, um, it's that point in the story where where all of it begins to make sense, right? Um, so there may be things yet to play out, but there's there's no more mystery that remains, right? Um, uh, I am going to use a spoiler alert to illustrate what I'm saying, but it's like a 20-year-old movie, so you've had plenty of time. Um, but, but it's like it, it's like in the movie The Sixth Sense when you find out that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time, right? And that everything in that moment begins to make sense. Somebody's, somebody's going to go watch it now and be utterly disappointed um, the rest of the time. Um, Right? That's the climax of the story. That's the moment when everything else makes sense. Not only everything that preceded it, but everything that will come after it just makes sense now. Right? It's the moment when the mystery is revealed. Well, the Bible tells us that the story being written in the universe, that the story of creation, that life and purpose, that, that all of that, the, the mystery, the climax, has been revealed in Jesus. And that's what Paul says in Colossians 1, um, starting in verse 24. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of walk through it um, very quickly, and then we'll talk about it um, as a whole. So starting in verse 24, this is what it says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So here's Paul, right? Paul is describing his role in the church, this role that has been given to him By God, right? And he uses this word minister, which is not an unfamiliar word to us, but it's the same word that we would use for deacon. It's the word servant, right? So what Paul says is, I have been made with with all of the authority that I bear, with all all of the respect that I am given, right, all of these things, really what I am is I am a servant of the church because of God. And in this church, he has given me stewardship. We could translate that word maybe uh, better as the word commission, that as a servant of God, for the sake of the church, he's been given a commission. He's been given something to do. And what is that? Well, it's to make the word of God fully known, right? Without lack, that the word of God would be made known in the church, to the church, that is why Paul is a servant of the church, and that is the commission that God has given him in the church. Let's keep reading. Verses 26 and 27 say this. The the mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to the saints. So the word of God fully known is this mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? So what does Paul go on to say? He says, in the endeavor of making the word of God fully known, we recognize, right, that Jesus is the climax. Jesus is this mystery that has now been revealed. What was hidden, what was unable to be understood in its fullness is now revealed, is now able to be understood in Jesus. And this revelation, right, this, this revealing of the mystery has been given to the saints, to those whom God chose to make known this mystery, to make known how great Are the riches of the glory of Christ in you? Right, to put it another way, sometimes Paul's writing is hard hard to translate in English, but right, to put it another way, the glory of Jesus revealed is a treasure that God has made known to his saints. A treasure, the worth of which God has chosen to make known to the saints. And what is that mystery, right? It is Christ, but not only Christ, it is Christ in you. Now, let's not divorce this from last week, right? Remember last week we talked about how Jesus is this supreme, preeminent, glorious, matchless, majestic ruler of all creation who stands outside of space and time, holds the universe together in His hand and by His power, right? This this transcendent Christ in you. What a glorious mystery indeed, right? That the God of heaven and earth, that the Lord of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, everlasting Father, Almighty God in you. That is the mystery that is revealed, that this transcendent Christ, this transcendent God would become imminent, dwelling, residing in you. And then what does it say? Christ in you, having him in us, is, that last phrase there, the hope of glory. So it is by virtue of this transcendent Christ becoming imminent, dwelling in us, that now we have the hope of glory. So what's Paul saying? It's because of our union. It's because of our mysterious union with Christ. It's because we are in Him and He is in us that we now have the hope of glory. And remember, when we read the word hope in the Bible, it's not the wishy-washy hope, right? It's not the, "I, I hope they haven't run out of the special at my favorite restaurant or I, I hope this guy or girl asks me out, right? It's not, it's not that. Hebrews 6.19 says that our hope in Jesus is like a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So the Bible describes hope as sure and steadfast, an anchor for the soul. Keep reading. Colossians 1.28 says this, right? So, Him we proclaim, Him Paul proclaims. Paul proclaims Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so this mystery that is now revealed, Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? That is what Paul endeavors to proclaim. That is is what it means for Paul to make the Word of God fully known, And Paul proclaims this mystery, proclaims this glory, this treasure, this riches, right? He proclaims it both positively through teaching, right? Instructing, but also negatively through warning, right? Through admonition, through exhortation. To what end? So that everyone might be presented mature in Christ. Now here's the thing, I want us to look at that word mature just briefly because really um, this is one of those words that is difficult to translate from the Greek to the English. And so what we end up with is a word that really is, is a little bit too weak. Typically when we think of maturity, we think of, okay, that's a comparative word, right? So depending on what room I am in, I might be more mature or less mature, right? If I step into a room with someone with a Ph.D. in theology, I am at that moment less mature, right? And yet that's not what this connotes at all. In fact, um, this, this Greek word teleos connotes the quality of being wholehearted in one's devotion to the Lord. So much so that one could be said to be blameless in contact. Uh, Another theologian describes it this way. He says, to be teleos is the complete and undivided way in which a person with all of one's positive and negative attributes is oriented towards God or towards Christ. And so what Paul says is that he endeavors by the proclamation of the mystery of Christ in us to present us as wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Essentially, that that this gospel, that this, this richness of mercy, that this treasure of Christ in us would be something that at some point is wholly consuming for us. That there are no other allegiances that we bow to. That is what Paul preaches these riches for. Verse 29 says this, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so Paul goes on to tell us that for for this reason, right, he is working strenuously so that the proclamation of this mystery of Christ in us would not only encourage the believers at Colossae, at Laodicea, and all of the believers who have not seen him face to face, but also that that they would then be knit together in love and that as they experience the encouragement of the gospel that knits them together in love, that they would then experience full assurance of understanding, of knowledge, of this mystery, which is Christ. And then it goes on to say this in verse 4. Or three and four. It says, It's in Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse four I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So what does Paul go on to say? He says, I preach and I proclaim Christ, right? Not only because it is this climax of human history, right? This revelation of mystery, not only because it encourages in the heart, not only because it knits us together, but also because it's there that we find all of the wisdom, all of the knowledge that we need, everything that we need for life and for godliness is found in Christ. So that, We might not be deluded by plausible arguments. Remember, Colossians is written on the occasion of false teaching, right? So Paul is writing to this church because he's saying, look, I know what the world is telling you right now. Here's why you shouldn't believe it. And here is how you ensure that you don't fall into the trap of plausible arguments Plato actually uses this same Greek word in a, lot of his, uh, in a lot of his writing, this word that is translated for us, plausible arguments. For, for Plato, it is translated popular oratory, meaning the, the common sort of cultural narrative, right? The prevailing cultural thought of the day. So what we could read here is that Paul says all of this to us. Paul tells us about this transiminent this transcendent Christ, this imminent Christ, this glory of His riches that have been revealed to us so that we might not fall victim to the prevailing cultural thought. And so what's this text calling us to? Obviously, it's calling us to be on guard, right, from anything that would present itself as truth that is not found in and birthed from Christ Himself. But I think even beyond that, it's a fundamental call to delight. Right? It's calling us to both revel in and see the riches of this mystery that is now revealed to us. Right? With, with the same awe, shock, and wonder, right, that we saw Bruce Willis's coat come off and the the blood show, right? That multiplied times infinity is the same awe, shock, and wonder that we are to look upon this this reality that, that a transcendent God would come and make Himself knowable in human terms, in human flesh, and not only that He would make Himself knowable, but that He would then go on to give Himself as a sacrifice for us. And I think... I think the reason that that we can clearly deduce that this is fundamentally a call to delight is by virtue of the words that Paul uses, right? What does he call this? He calls this glory, treasures, riches, all wisdom, all knowledge, right? Again, the comprehensive nature of Christ to be treasured, delighted in. And we're called not only to, to value Him above all else, but to the exclusion of everything else, right? Called to be singularly minded in our delights. Maybe Kierkegaard would say that to have purity of heart, right? Which is to will one thing. That is the end for which the gospel is preached by Paul, as he tells us in verse 28, right? That we saints might be... Presented mature, which we, which we said earlier is to be presented as singularly minded. Unfortunately, as we know, right, basically any time that we read an imperative in the Bible, right, something that we should do or something that we should be, um, it's, it's not long after reading it that we realize that we fail. We fail to delight in Jesus. We fail to delight in this revelation of the mystery that's been given to us. We fail to delight in His transcendence. We fail to delight in His imminence. And why is that? Well, I think it's fairly simple, right? If the call of the text is to single-mindedness, to a singular delight, then the reason that we fail is because we are double-minded. And Paul gives us two reasons in this text for why we might be double-minded. The first one is this. The first one is, right, as it says in verse 4, we may be currently believing plausible arguments instead of the Word of God that where that we're the world has told us that there's something better out there, that we have believed the world and thus chased after those things. And so we've become double-minded. It's Jesus and wealth. It's Jesus and an independent sexuality. It's Jesus and power or control. It's Jesus and add whatever else you want into that cocktail. And what Paul tells us is that those arguments, while sure they might be plausible, they are not truth. They are not true. In fact, Christ goes on to lay claim to that mantle in and of Himself when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. And so what Paul says is, look, what what leads to double-mindedness is when when we are deluded, when we are deceived by plausible arguments, arguments that make sense maybe in our failed reasoning, our rationality, but arguments that ultimately are not true because they are not found in the source of truth, which is Jesus, the source of all knowledge, all wisdom. That's the first reason that that Paul gives us for why we might be double-minded in our delight. But there's another another reason that that might be, and it's it's much more simple, and I think it's less difficult to untangle. And that's just quite clearly that this mystery has been revealed to the saints. Right? That's what it says. It says that this mystery, right, for some people is still a mystery. The Bible in some places says that 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 it's as if a veil is still being worn, that we are unable, that there are people in the world that are unable to see this mystery of the gospel. And that is why Paul preaches, proclaims the mystery of the gospel. Why? So that everyone, right, might become singularly minded. So the exclusive truth of Jesus with the inclusive invitation that everyone might experience And so maybe you're sitting in the room this morning, and the, the, the sheer reason, right, for double-mindedness, the sheer, the sheer reason for the feeling of emptiness or the circular reasoning of the world is purely because we have not seen Jesus as He is. We've maybe heard a cultural version of Jesus, or maybe we've had Him sort of um, miniaturized and put into pet form that we kind of enjoy when we want to, but only then, right? Right? And so the call of this text for you this morning is simply to behold. To behold the transcendent God who is imminent for you and who purposes to make himself known to you right now through the proclamation, both in the teaching of who he is and in the warning of what it means for us to walk away from him. But here's what's so great about the gospel, right? Right? In that in any area that we have failed, and in every way that we have failed, Christ has, in His turn, succeeded. And not only succeeded, but He's done so on our behalf, right? That's essentially what the basis of our faith is. We failed, Jesus didn't, so we can trust Him. We can trust Him for our righteousness. And so where we have led double-minded lives, Jesus led the single-minded life on our behalf, right? He lived thus a perfect life. And it's in Him that, again, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3, that every treasure of knowledge and wisdom resides such that, such that when we delight in Him, we can actually avoid being deluded by plausible arguments. And I think Jesus shows us the way forward, right? He exhibits this in his own ministry. And I'm just going to use two, like, very brief examples of the the, the hundreds and hundreds that are in just these few gospel accounts that we have of his life, right? Let's see how Jesus exhibits this knowledge. Luke chapter 4, right? Here's what's happening. Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes out to the desert. He fasts there for 40 days, meaning he, he does not eat anything for 40 days. And it's at the conclusion of those 40 days, right, uh, obviously a moment of physical weakness, right, that Satan approaches and Satan tempts Jesus, right? And this is, what, this is how it goes down. This is what the devil says. The first thing that, that the devil tempts him with, He says to Jesus, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. I know you are hungry. If you're the Son of God, make this stone bread. Simple. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Right? What happens next? It says the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in that moment of time and said to him, Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, all of it will be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil's like, All right, back back to the drawing board. What does he say next? He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And Jesus said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To every offer of Satan, right? To every plausible argument of Satan's, Jesus responds with the word. Right? Those red letters in chapter 4, each one of them is a direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus is calling upon the knowledge of the Word of God that Paul says now has been fully made known in Him. He's calling upon that knowledge so that He might not be deluded by the plausible arguments presented to Him by the devil. He responded with knowledge, true knowledge, trustworthy knowledge, eternal knowledge in the Word that what might have satisfied him momentarily might be put away for the sake of what he knows to be true and satisfying. He also exhibits his wisdom, right? In Matthew chapter 23, he's conversing with um, the, the Pharisees, the religious and moral elite of the day, right? Those who walked around looking down their noses at all the plebeians who were unable to walk as they walked, talk as they talked. And this is what Jesus said to them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. And so what does he say? He says, look, the, the Pharisees, they might have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom because wisdom is knowledge rightly applied, and they've applied it terribly in a terribly misguided way. And so what does Jesus cut to the core of? He says, no, look, I, you have to understand that in me, there's not only knowledge, but there is wisdom to be had. And we see Jesus exercise that throughout his life. These are just two very short things that, or examples that we've seen this morning. But Paul tells us that it's not only the treasures of knowledge and wisdom that we have in Jesus, it's also, right, and more importantly, I would argue, the hope of glory that we have in Jesus. And when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus on our behalf, I think it's the hope of glory that ultimately carries Jesus across the finish line, right? There's this beautifully tender moment um, in the Gospels that we see recorded. It happens on the night that Jesus is arrested. Um, And on the night that, that Jesus is arrested, he's in this garden and he's praying to his father, right? And he says to his father, he says, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. Right. So Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what is about to transpire. And he says, says, Father God, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. And then he says this line that, that whether we spend a lot of time in the Bible or not, we probably recognize. He says, yet not my will, but your will be done. Right, that in that moment, Jesus was confident beyond the shadow of a doubt that God's decrees would come to pass. So although the road was dark and devastatingly lonely, He was willing and able to walk it in confidence. Right, Hebrews 12.2 actually sheds light on what's happening in Jesus' mind in this moment. Right, Because Hebrews 12.2 tells us this, it says that it was for the joy set before Jesus that He endured the cross. For the joy set before Him, for the hope of glory set before Him that He endured the cross. That in this moment of suffering, unlike anybody else in all of existence has ever experienced, where Jesus not only experienced physical suffering, but also God's just wrath in taking on the sin of the world upon Himself. Hebrews tells us that the promise of future reward, that the joy set before Him is what gave Jesus the strength to suffer for our sake. It's Amazing. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lived a singularly minded life for the joy set before Him. He exercised the knowledge and wisdom found in and of Himself as the Word of God come in the flesh, and He did it. He did it so that you and I might have the same hope of glory. And that's the greatness, that's the treasure, that's the riches of the mystery revealed, isn't it? that Christ is in us, and so now we have hope of glory. Which means this, which means that we, like Jesus, also have joy set before us. We have joy set before us in which we can endure the ideological wrath of the false teachers, in which we can look at the plausible arguments of the world and say, You may say that I am on the wrong side of history. But there is a truth that is eternal and transcendent above the prevailing cultural thought. And it is for that joy set before me. It is for those riches set before me. It is for that inheritance set before me. It is for that hope of glory set before me. It is for that that I can endure. And Paul says we should treasure that reality like great riches, right? I think the Psalms actually show us the way here. Show us what it means to delight in something this grand, this marvelous, this glorious. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. It said, Blessed is the man. You could read woman there too. Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. If you would allow me some leeway, I think we could read that, blessed is the man who is not deluded by plausible arguments, right? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So blessed is the person who is not deluded by plausible arguments, but who delights in In the Lord and meditates upon him day and night. What is he saying? Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the person who is singularly minded in their delight. And here's what's crazy about that, right? That this is the psalmist. So the psalmist is writing about the law, and yet in the New Testament, those books written after Jesus, we find out that the law is infinitely more glorious, less glorious. I'm sorry than the mystery of Christ revealed. And so if the psalmist can delight in this way, in the law of the Lord, surely we can now delight to an even greater degree in the riches of the mystery of Christ in us. And what is it that happens when we delight? When we delight accordingly, I think Psalm 1 again tells us, right? Verse 3, it says, For this person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see, when we delight, when we are not deluded by plausible arguments, but when we delight in the riches of God, the mystery of Christ in us, all of knowledge and wisdom given to us in Him, When we delight in that, we flourish. We flourish. Which is why Paul says that we will not only be encouraged in the heart, but that we'll be knit together in love. That we, not only as individuals, but as a corporate gathering, as a body of believers, we flourish when we are singularly minded, delighting in the mystery of Christ in us. Brothers and sisters, this is why we gather on Sundays. This is why we gather in neighborhood parishes throughout the weeks. This is why we have sojourn academy classes, devotional reading plans, prayer meetings, times of service in the city. What are we encouraging one another to? We're encouraging one another to delight. A singular delight in Jesus. And what I love about this particular passage in Colossians is, again, the sense of just the comprehensive nature of Jesus, right? It's in Jesus that Paul says the Word of God is fully known. And so here's the thing. We may perceive some distance from God because maybe there's some aspects of Him that we can't understand or rationalize within our sort of logical line of thinking, our finite human mind. And yet if we look to Jesus, Paul tells us that there will be no lack, no lack of knowledge, no lack of wisdom, and more importantly, no lack of hope. No lack of hope. All we need for life and godliness found in the Word of God, fully known, in the mystery of God revealed, Christ in us. And so in closing, here's what I would kind of want us to, to know, right? If Jesus is the climax of the story, the revealing of the mystery, then that means that we are living in what, what again, uh, literature professors would call the, the denouement, the part of the narrative, the part of the play, the part of the book, the part of the movie where the strands of the plot are drawn together and are resolved. Here's what I mean. There, are, there may be details left to, to be played out, but there will be no more plot twists. What I mean by that is nobody's going to come and usurp Jesus' power. Nobody's going to come and conquer the church. Nobody's going to come. and There is no plot twist left. Jesus will reign and rule. Jesus will reign and rule sovereignly over all of creation as the preeminent Christ, but He will also dwell in us mysteriously and gloriously in such a way that we will experience the fullness of His riches. Brothers and sisters, that is the hope of glory in which we can endure, we can endure the appeals of our current cultural thought, our current cultural narrative. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, we do thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together. And I pray, Lord, that this morning as we come to the table and we take of the bread and of the cup, Lord, that we would take it this morning with delight. That we would delight in the mystery of the Word of God being made fully known in the person of Jesus, but also in His work. That Jesus came with no uncertainty to bring lost sinners home to you. God, what a treasure. What a thing to be reveled in. What a thing to delight and to celebrate above all other things that we tend to delight in and celebrate. And so I pray, Father, that we would come, not solemnly, but with great joy in the hope of glory that we have. We praise you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.